Well, I trust um, most doctors, most kinds of doctors, but every once in a while you hear some stories that make you realize why we call it medical practice. Some doctors are just practicing, trying to figure it out. For thousands of years, physicians noticed that a person's mental state uh, can be affected if they have a dramatic physiopathological shock or brain seizures. Um, so whether it's from a head injury or intense illness or chemically induced unconsciousness or convulsions. And so doctors started to practice this and started to experiment with it. In the time of the Roman Empire, for instance, electric fish were used to provide shocks to ill patients. Um, Scribonius Largus used it in 47 AD for treating persistent headaches. Imagine that. You go to the doctor with a headache, he says, why don't you hop in that pool with the electric eels and see how that goes. You'll soon forget about your headache, trust me. Um, in 1910, an Austrian physician, Julius Wagner Jaureg, discovered a medical breakthrough which won him the Nobel Prize for medicine, malarial fever therapy. This is where they inject you with malaria and so that the fever causes seizures and convulsions, and this is supposed to um, help with, I don't even know what it's supposed to help with. The, the, I guess you just have malaria then instead of your depression or whatever it was. In 1933, Polish physician and researcher Manfred Seiko discovered insulin shock therapy involving injections of large amounts of insulin to cause convulsions and a coma by provoking hypoglycemia. And this was used until the 1950s as a treatment for depression and psychosis. In the 1960s, an Italian researcher, Ugo Serletti and um, Lucio Bini, invented electroconvulsive therapy. This is when a grand mal seizure is induced by shocking a person's brain, um, and it is still in use today. The exact mechanism of action by which shock therapies work is not actually known to science. They just know that it does work Sometimes, um, in a short decade between 1920 and 1930, hundreds of thousands of patients were subjected to electroshock therapy, including many famous personalities like Sylvia Plath and Ernest Hemingway, who both ended up killing themselves. So I don't know what that says about the treatment. Now, why, why would patients subject themselves to this? Why would they even agree to allow the doctor to try this radical, traumatic type of treatment? And the answer is, if you ask the patient, if you ask the doctor, is sometimes people just get that desperate. They just want the problem to go away and they're willing to try anything. And so they'll subject themselves to this tremendous trauma of shock therapy. Well, in tonight's passage, we will see arguably the most shocking passage in all of Scripture. And you might end up asking yourself, why is this even in the Bible? Why did they even bother writing this down? Couldn't we just have skipped this? But the point of Judges, as we have seen, is that desperate times call for desperate measures. And in a world where there is no king in Israel and everyone is doing what is right in their own eyes and nobody's following God or even trying to find out what God wants, people become desperate. And so they need to be shocked back into obedience. And this is what we see in tonight's passage. So turn in, in your Bibles to the days that the judges ruled Israel, the days when there was no king in Israel, and every man did what was right in his own eyes. Chapter 19. Now the narrator is making a point with this story we're about to read. He's showing that since Israel stopped following God, 
there is a need for authority. There is a need for a king, somebody to step in and set the law and enforce the law. There's a need for people to go back to knowing what it is Yahweh wants from them so that they will obey him. And this is a desperate time in Israel's history. He's showing that when a society is left without law and order, each person will do whatever they think is right, and this will lead to moral decay and utter chaos, as we have been seeing. Now, the way the narrator does this in the book of Judges is he arranges the stories in a certain order. Now, up until now, we've kind of been um, going through the order as if it's chronological, but now we get to a section of the book that actually didn't happen at this time. We know that because the narrator links the events of certain sections of his book to the lifetimes of certain people. And so he does that again tonight. So we see in section one, that was the introduction. Section two was the judges' reigns, where we go through each judge and what they did. And now we're in section three, which is kind of an appendix to the book of Judges of moral depravity. And what you'll notice is after Samson, there are no more judges. So now there's not only no king in Israel, there's really nobody at all ruling in Israel. Now this event happened earlier on in the history of Israel, but the narrator has left it to the end for a reason. He has saved the worst for last. He wants to end the book with the sense of dissonance, the sense of absolute desperation and shock, so that when he follows it up with the king of Israel coming, we will just breathe a huge sigh of relief that finally God has raised up somebody to rule his people. Remember that one of the theories of the fact that the book of Judges even exists is as an apologetic for why Israel needed a king, even though under Moses, God said, you don't need a king, I will rule you. And then God said, but one day you will have a king because you will need one, and these are the qualifications for him. So Israel was trying to go as long as they could without a king, and the book of Judges is to show, we've tried long enough, we now need a king. So that's sort of where we find ourselves in the, the progression of the book of Judges. So this section that we're about to get into happens three generations after the Exodus. Now we know this because uh, the book of Joshua, I mean the, the book of Judges starts off with the words, after the death of Joshua. Remember, so you've got Moses and the Israelites after the 40 years. Joshua brings the conquest. That's the book of Joshua. At the end of Joshua's life, um, the book of Judges starts and there's no new ruler. There's no Moses, there's no Joshua, and there's no ruler. And that's when the book of Judges starts. Now, in chapter 18, we saw last week, verse 30, uh, so that part ends with these words, the people of Dan set up the carved image for themselves, and Jonathan, the son of Gershom, the son of Moses, and his sons were priests to the tribe of the Danites until the day of the captivity of the land. So that's the first time we now see when that whole uh, episode with the Levite and his carved images and the Danites looking for a place to live because they didn't do what they were supposed to, it's very early on after the death of Joshua. The grandson of Moses is still alive. So three generations after Moses, right? Now in chapter 20 we will read, in verse 27, the people of Israel inquired of Yahweh for the ark of the covenant of God was there in those days. And verse 28 says, and Phinehas the son of Eleazar, who was the son of Aaron. Remember, Aaron is Moses' brother. Ministered before it in those days. Okay, so go back to chapter 19. And the only point I'm making is that Moses' grandson is still alive. He's that Levite who's sold out. 
and his brother Aaron, his grandson is still alive, Phineas, who's actually mentioned in, in the book of Numbers. So this is very, very early on, even though it happens at the end of Judges. Now, the reason I'm making such a big deal about this is because whenever a narrator in Scripture does that, there's a reason for it. He's drawing a particular type of attention and he's making a particular point. He saved a story that happened. He didn't want you to know how bad it was until we got to this point. So tonight we're going to read this section. We're going to learn about this. Um, the only names given in this whole section are um, Jonathan the Levite and uh, Phineas, the, the grandson of Aaron. Everybody else is anonymous. And I think he does that either to protect the identities of the families of these people or to make the point that this was quite typical. This could have happened to anybody. And so tonight we have, as our outline, one main point. Usually I say there are three points. Tonight there's one main point. Um, my preaching professor, Dr. Montoya, always said, make sure that everything you say from the pulpit at least has one point. So <laughs> some people print, preach pointless sermons. Don't be one of them. Um, the main point is that when the standard isn't God's, it's useless. That's our point. When the standard isn't God's standard, it's useless. Because remember, these are people coming up with their own codes of morality, their own standards, just like people today are doing. And if it's not God's standard, it's absolutely useless, as we shall see. So let's just start this off, uh, chapter 19, verse 1. In those days, there was no king in Israel. And a certain Levite, not the same one we've been reading about, just another one, was sojourning in the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim, who took to himself a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah. And his concubine was unfaithful to him. She went away from him to her father's house at Bethlehem in Judah. And there, it was there for some months, uh, some four months. Okay, so this is the story so far. We've got this anonymous Levite. He's taken a concubine. So, right up front, let me just prepare you that everybody in this story is engrossed in some sort of sexual sin. That's the problem with Israel, and that's what we see here. Very much like today, when there is no morality uh, and no sacredness of the marriage bed and the sexual union, there is a general malaise within a society. And the more that is allowed in a society, the more the malaise spreads. And that's what we're seeing today, and that's what we see here in their day as well. So this Levite takes for himself a concubine. Now, a concubine is not really a word we use anymore, unless you're insulting somebody. I wouldn't do that. Um, don't call anybody a concubine. But it's a, in those days, it was kind of like a second-class wife in the days that polygamy was normal. This is not somebody that he's married to. So th this would be somebody that you either, it's, you, you have a wife and then you have this kind of, you know, little one on the side. Um, or you don't even get married and you just have this woman and she, does, she may live with you for a while, she might not. Um, but she's different from a prostitute. A prostitute, you know, it's, isn't dedicated to one person, but a concubine is dedicated to one man, and he is responsible for looking after her welfare in their society. Uh, and you're thinking, now, where is this legislated in the book of Moses? It's not. This guy shouldn't have this lady. <laughs> this, is, this is completely outside of God's will. Today, we, we, in our society, it's still pretty much frowned upon, but there are parts of the world. I was an exchange student in, um, in South America, and the family that I was with, one day, the, um, the, the, my host brother, we were going to another town, and I'd met his girlfriend. He had a wonderful girlfriend. They had a great relationship. And when we went to the other town, he sat me down, and in 
trying to speak in English and trying to have me understand in Spanish, he explained, now we're going to meet another girlfriend there, and that girlfriend doesn't know about this girlfriend, so I don't want you to mention them, okay? And I was like, I don't think this is right. And he said, it's okay, my dad has one too in the same town. And I said, and your mom knows about it? And he's like, eh, I'm not sure, but that's how we do things here. To this day, I don't know if that's how they do things there or if just that's how they do things there. But it, the idea is that you have like a mistress, a mistress with an apartment that you pay for and you look after and you're not married to her. But, you know, if she has, if she needs dental work, then you're the one that has to foot the bill and you can go visit her when you want to. So this guy has this woman, but look what it says about her in verse 2. His concubine was unfaithful to him. Now, this is the first hint of irony that is going to be thread throughout this chapter. There's great irony in this chapter. The irony is all about morality. What is right and what is wrong? So this guy has a concubine, which we clearly know is wrong, because he's being unfaithful to his wife if he's married, and if he's not, he's being unfaithful to God. And now it says she's being unfaithful, which is just ironic, because the woman you're being unfaithful with is being unfaithful to you and makes her the bad guy. Well, she's not the bad guy, okay? Just everybody here is the bad guy. So she's unfaithful, and the way she's unfaithful is to go back to her father. You know, men are supposed to look after women in that society. So she goes back to her father, and in verse 3, it tells us, um, then her husband arose, and by the way, this word husband is being used ironically here as well. He's not her husband. Maybe the father thinks he is. But later on, this term will change, and he'll start being called her master. So at the moment, it's almost like husband and wife, but it becomes a master-slave relationship later on. So verse 3, her husband rose, went after her to speak kindly to her and to bring her back. He had with him his servant and a couple of donkeys, and she brought him into her father's house. When the girl's father saw him, he came with joy to meet him. And the father-in-law, the girl's father, made him stay, and he remained with him three days. And so they ate and drank and spent the night there. And on the fourth day, they rose early in the morning, and he prepared to go. But the girl's father said to his son-in-law, Strengthen your heart with a morsel of bread, and after that you may go. So the two of them sat and ate and drank together. There's a lot of drinking in this chapter, by the way. And the girl's father said to the man, Be pleased to spend the night and let your heart be merry. And, and look, we're not going to read the whole thing. This happens four times. And this is very important. Four times this father invites his daughter's man into his home with joy. Remember, this is all ironic. He should be beating this guy up for not marrying his daughter. Instead, he's inviting him in. And every time the guy wants to leave with the daughter, the father says, no, 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 stay and eat some more. Drink some more. Oh, it's late. Spend another night. Next day, he's like, okay, we're going to wake up early. No, no, no. Eat some more. Drink some more. Stay another. It happens four times. And what's happening here is the narrator is emphasizing that the hospitality code is key in the story. The hospitality code was something that's known in the Middle East even to this day. Um, it was considered a very important uh, way of expressing your uh, standing as an upright citizen. Uh, today it is called Pashtunwali uh, in the Middle East. Pashtunwali is the, the code of hospitality. It is so entrenched in a society that hospitality is important, that the whole story of Marcus Luttrell surviving in Afghanistan is based on it. If you know that story, there was a movie made about it, Lone Survivor, there was a book about it. 
Marcus Luttrell was one of four Navy SEALs um, that was uh, in Operation Red Wings, I think it was. He was, they were pinned in a certain spot and three of them ended up dying and he survived. He had a broken back, he nearly died, but he was found by one of the Afghanis who knew that if he helped this American soldier, he, his family, and his entire village would be wiped out by the Taliban. But he still brought him in, and the whole village, knowing that they were going to get wiped out by the Taliban, looked after Marcus Luttrell, and the reason was because of this Pashtunwali. They, he was a guest, he was a foreigner. So therefore, we are bound by our moral code to look after him, even if it means we all end up dying. And thankfully, the, the rest of the SEALs managed to go in and rescue him and rescue them from um, the Taliban. But it's a really interesting idea that it, it came down to hospitality is why these, this whole village was willing to look after this American. So we get to verse 10. But the man would not spend the night. He rose up, this is after the fourth time, and departed and arrived opposite Jebus. That is Jerusalem. Jebus would eventually, where the Jebusites were, would eventually become Jerusalem. He, with him, uh, he had with him a couple of saddled donkeys and his concubine was with him. And when they were near Jebus, the day was nearly over and the servant said to his master, come now, let's turn aside into the city of the Jebusites and spend the night in it. And his master said to him, we will not turn aside into the city of foreigners who do not belong to the people of Israel, but we will pass on to Gibeah. So what's happening here is You've seen an extreme version of hospitality. This man who just keeps saying, stay, stay, stay. I'm going to keep feeding you. I'm going to keep for four days. He finally breaks free of that, and he goes. And now he actually needs a place to stay. And the closest town is run by foreigners. It shouldn't have been, because if Israel was doing what they were supposed to, they should have driven out the Jebusites by now, but they haven't. And so he says, no, I refuse to go and find hospitality with foreigners, because I'm, you know, I'm an Israelite. I will go further... And, and risk our lives and be out longer in the dark just so that we get to an, an Israelite town nearby, which is Gibeah, and that's where we'll get our hospitality. So that's what he does. Now, I want you to notice that he has a moral code, this guy. It's a bad one, but he, he, he has a code that he's kind of making up. It's not wrong for him to have a concubine. It's not wrong for him to get drunk, as we shall see, he does that later again. It's, it is wrong for him, though, to stay with foreigners. And, and I want you to know that about unbelievers. Un, it's not that unbelievers are all as immoral as anyone could ever be. If you're an unbeliever, you still have a code. Unbelievers still have a code. They still have a morality. But their morality is not based on the Bible. They kind of pick and choose what they consider moral. So he's doing this one thing right by saying, I don't, I don't want to stay with the Gentiles, um, but what he's doing wrong is, well, he's got this concubine. And we see this even among criminals. Um, you've heard the phrase, honor among thieves. You know, thieves will steal from you, but they won't steal from each other because they have honor among thieves. And this is why um, uh, people who assault, sexually assault children, when they go to prison, they're targeted by the other prisoners, and they're beaten up by the other prisoners. So you have rapists and murderers who have on their high horse say, well, at least I didn't do it to a child. Like, so they're just like making up their own morality and deciding what's right. But they do have a code. So the Levite sees this as an evil thing to sojourn with foreigners. He's not going to lower himself. He's going to press on to go to Gibeah. 
And so that's where we find ourselves. But now he gets to the crux of the matter is he gets to Gibeah in Benjamin. The Benjamites of, of Gibeah, they don't take him in. Um, so look at verse 16. Behold, and he, so he's, he comes in, he's wandering around, he can't find, nobody wants to take him in. Um, verse 15 says, they turned aside there to go in and spend the night at Gibeah. He went in, sat down in the open square of the city, but no one takes notice of him. No one invites him into his house to spend the night. Verse 16, Behold, an old man was coming from his work in the field at evening. And the man was from the hill country of Ephraim, and he was sojourning in Gibeah too. And the men of the place were Benjamites. That's important. The Benjamites are, are key at this point. He lifted up his eyes. He saw the traveler in the open square of the city. And, he, and the old man said to him, Where are you going? Where do you come from? And so he tells him all that. Um, and in verse 9, he even says, Look, we've got straw to feed our donkeys with bread and wine for me and your female servant and the young man with your servants. There's no lack of anything. So he's basically saying, Look, I just need a place to stay. I don't even need anything from you. I don't need food. I don't need drink. I don't even need any food for my donkeys. I just need a place to stay. The narrator is going out of his way to show us how easy it would be to show this man hospitality. And the old man, verse 20, says, Peace to you, I will care for all your wants, only do not spend the night in the square, because this is a dangerous place. So the old man brings him into his house and gave the donkeys feed, and they washed their feet, and they ate, and they drank. And as they were making their hearts merry, in other words, they were getting drunk, behold, the men of the city, worthless fellows, which is the understatement of the century, Worthless fellows surrounded the house, beating on the door. And they said to the old man, the master of the house, bring out the man who came into your house that we may know him. And know there is a Hebrew euphemism for um, sexual relations. Adam knew Eve and they had a child. And the man, the master of the house, went to them and said, no, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Since this man has come into my house, do not do this vile thing. So notice his reasoning here. What is the reason it would be wicked for them to assault this man? Well, because he's a guest of mine. Forget what God says. These are Israelites. These are Benjamites. How about, no, no, no. We know from the law of Moses that homosexuality is wrong. How about that? No, he's a guest. So he's appealing to the, the code of hospitality to keep this man safe. So we've seen hospitality overdone by the concubine's father. We've seen it neglected by the Benjamites who don't invite him in. Finally, this old man who is not a Benjamite, he's from Ephraim, he's also just a visitor, but he has a room. Um, he's at least the one that does some good here. The Benjamites and the Gibeonites ignore the man, but here's this guy. But this guy is also going to go overboard with his commitment to hospitality over his commitment to God's law. So, it gets pretty gruesome from here. I just want to point out that the phrase, bring out the man who came into your house that we may know him, is the exact language that was used in Genesis chapter 19. Genesis 19, verse 1, two angels came to Sodom in the evening. Remember, Lot and his family are living in Sodom. The angels come to tell Sodom to get out of town. 
Abraham has spoken to God, if there were just 10 people in the town, would you spare it? And God says, if there's even 10 people, I'll spare that town. But that town is so wicked that there isn't anybody there worth sparing except the eight in Lot's house, which I'm going to pull out. And so the angels go there to, to rescue them. And the angels who come in like a masculine form, they, they look like male humans, uh, apparently there's something that triggers the uh, attractiveness or whatever. The, the, all the men of the town come, these sodomites, these homosexual men, and they want to attack these angels. Um, and so, verse 4, before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house, and they called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we might know them. And we know what happened to Sodom. God absolutely destroyed it and destroyed everybody because of the depravity. In fact, the, the angels strike these men blind and they still keep trying to assault them. That's how desperately stuck they are in their sin. And so when, when these men of Gibeah come, these are Israelites. It's like the narrator of the book is telling us, God wiped out the most wicked city in the world and now there's a new Sodom and it's in Israel. That's how bad we have become. It's in Israel. And what's about to happen is a story that gets remembered by Israel forever. In fact, in Hosea, Hosea chapter 9, verse 9, it says, they have deeply corrupted themselves as in the days of Gibeah. He will remember their iniquity and he'll punish their sins. So even in Hosea, many, many centuries later, there's this reminder the people have become so wicked, they were as wicked as the days of Gibeah. This is a story that that's talking about. This becomes proverbial. And the event that we're about to read starts a chain reaction that leads to a civil war and the near genocide of the Benjamite people. But it's shock therapy. Verse 23. The people of Israel... No, where are we? Uh, verse 23. The man, the master of the house went out to them and said to them, No, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Since this man has come into my house, do not do this vile thing. And then he says this, Behold, here are my virgin daughter and his concubine. Let me bring them out now. Violate them. Do to them what seems good to you. But against this man, do not do this outrageous thing. So he is so twisted in his morality that he thinks the hospitality code is the most important thing in life. To look after his guest, he says, rather than rape my guest, rape my daughter and, and his concubine. That'll keep you busy tonight. Can you imagine how twisted a person must be to think that that's good? But that's what happens when people don't know the will of the Lord and they have their own codes. And when you, when you have a moral code, if the standard's not God's, it's... It's useless. It's absolutely useless. Verse 25, the men did not listen to him. So the man seized his concubine and made her go out to them. And they knew her and abused her all night until the morning. And as the dawn began to break, they let her go. As the morning appeared, the woman came and fell down at the door of the man's house where her master was. It's not called him the husband anymore. It's like a slave now. Her master was until the light. And her master rose up in the morning, and when he opened the doors of the house and went out to go on his way, behold, there was his concubine lying at the door of the house with her hands on the threshold. He said to her, get up, let's be going. But there was no answer. He put her on the donkey, and the man rose up 
and went away to his home. She died. Verse 29, when he entered his house, he took a knife, taking hold of his concubine, he divided her limb by limb into 12 pieces. He sent her throughout all the territory of Israel. And all who saw it said, such a thing has never happened or been seen from the day that the people of Israel came out of the land of Egypt until this day. Consider it, take counsel, and speak. I mean, if that doesn't churn your stomach, nothing will. I want you to realize that as gruesome as that sexual sin is, is how God views all sexual sin. It's meant to shock you. It's, it's meant to turn your stomach. It's meant for you to think, how wicked can people be that they even think that, that they would do such things? And then I want you to remember that God sees all sexual sin as wicked. Let that shock you to reality. As evil as you think this man is, they may perhaps be men in this room who are willing to send their daughters to the Gibeonites. Fathers who say, you know, my, my daughter's old enough, she can pick a boyfriend for herself. What they do in the privacy of their own life, that's up to them. It's not my responsibility. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. It's your responsibility to look after your daughters. There may be men in this room, there may be women in this room who actively participate in the exploitation of women through the pornographic industry. If you participate in pornography, you are not only endorsing, but supporting an industry that is predatory and exploitive of women. You're as bad as a man who would do this to a woman. And there's a type of sin that is particularly heinous in God's sight, and it is sexual sin. I know all sins are enough to take you to hell. Any sin is. But sexual sin is the worst. And that's not just an opinion. Let me read for you 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18. Paul says, 1 Corinthians 6, 18, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? From whom... That you, whom you have from God, you are not your own. You were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Sexual sin is different. As a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit in you, and you are uniting the Holy Spirit to a sin in a way that you don't do with any other kind of sin. Yes, murder is bad, but it's not as bad as sexual sin. Because murder happens outside the body, sexual sin happens inside the body where the Holy Spirit is. Douglas Wilson says, sexual sin is not the worst of sins, but in some, res some respects it is the most complicated of sins. All dirt should be washed off our hands, but pine sap is harder to get off. Sexual sin entangles in a way that other sins do not. Sometimes you, maybe you've heard that verse, um, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. It's usually taken out of context to tell people that they shouldn't smoke or they shouldn't get a tattoo or something. Well, your, your, temp, your, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Well, 
there, there are other verses to consider with those things, but your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit in this context is used to say you shouldn't commit any type of sexual sin. That's what it means. Douglas Wilson says, the phrase lifted out of context can be used to urge Christians to refrain from eating refined sugar, sedentary lifestyles, and of course, big stinky cigars. But Paul says specifically that he's only talking about sexual sin here. Other sins are outside the body, but fornication is not. This would include chopping a finger off with an axe. Poor stewardship, bad idea, and all that. But it's not a defilement of the temple. This is accomplished through fornication. No matter what you do to the outside of your body, you're not actually defiling the temple, but sexual sin defiles the temple. How serious is God about this sin? 1 Corinthians 10, verse 8 we must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test, Paul says, as some did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. These things happen to them as an example, but they've been written down for your instruction to the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone thinks, who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. God killed 23,000 people of Israel because of sexual sin. Paul's referring to an account in Numbers 25 that's important because of the only other name mentioned in this account. Remember the only other name? Jonathan the Levite. And who was the other guy? Aaron's grandson named Phineas. Do you remember what Phineas did? It's what, it's what Paul's talking about in 1 Corinthians 10. Let me read for you Numbers 25, verse 7. When Phineas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron grandson of Aaron, saw it, he rose and left the congregation. What did he see? There was a couple that was not married sleeping together. This was the first time that it happened in Israel since they left Egypt. And the people weren't doing anything about it, so God started killing people. Interesting, why didn't God just kill the two people doing it? God's making a point that we should be shocked by that. The whole body should be shocked by what they're doing. And the whole body, the fact that we're letting them do it, means that we are under judgment as well. And so Phineas sees what's happening, and to stop the plague, this is what he does. He rose, left the congregation, took a spear in his hand, went after the man of Israel into the chamber, and pierced both of them, the man of Israel and the woman, through her belly. Thus the plague on the people of Israel was stopped. Nevertheless, those who died by the plague were 24,000, 23,000 in one day and another 1,000 over the next few days. 24,000 people died. 23,000 in one day because of this fornication. And he stops it by, you know, fornication shish kebab. Sticks it through both of them. And that heinous act is what God's, caused God to relent and say, right, he gets it. Phineas is the only one here who gets it. That's what you should have done. Fascinating that our narrator reminds us this is happening in his day. You kind of want to ask, where are the Phineases? There are people alive that day. They would have been old men by then, but they would have been people alive who understood how seriously God took sexual sin. Why aren't they in Gibeah getting rid of these homosexual rapists? So the narrator is showing that sexual sin is at the heart of God's anger at the nation. Whenever I do any kind of marital, um, premarital counseling or um, dating couples 
counseling, I always find a way to work this verse in. 1 Thessalonians 4.3 For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. 1 Thessalonians 4.3 You want to know the will of God for your life? 1 Thessalonians 4.3 The will of God for your life is that you abstain from sexual immorality. You do that for the rest of your life, at least you know you're in God's will. So yes, sexual sin is shocking. Jesus said that if your right eye makes you stumble, pluck it out. Throw it from you. If in your life you're aware of a wandering eye that feasts on pornographic images, TV and magazines and phone and the internet, take drastic action. Get yourself a dumb phone. You know, you can go buy dumb phones now where you can't get images on them. I know it's, it's hard. It's, it's easier than cutting off your hand. It's easier than ripping out your eye. If you're not willing to get a dumb phone, what are we even doing here? Jesus said it's better for you to go to heaven with one eye and one hand than go to hell with your whole body. That's how seriously Jesus took this sin. God kills 23,000 people. And Israel was just accepting it. You know, and in our world, we have this problem. We have a morality. We have a standard, but it's not God's standard. So it's useless. People think that what God wants is that we should just love everybody and accept everybody the way they are, and we should be tolerant. And of course, you, you need to be tolerant of other people's views because we live in a free society, but that doesn't mean we need to say that it's right. doesn't mean... I mean, it's, it's so crazy to me. People are like, well, we just... There's this whole thing in the news at the moment about Pastor Andy Stanley, who's, who's been such a leader in the evangelical world and he's, he's trying to reconcile homosexuality with the love of the Bible. These are just people that want to love each other the same way we just want to love each other. No, this is an abomination to God. We need to be willing to stand up to sexual sin. But don't be a hypocrite though. Don't be somebody who's all self-righteous about how wrong homosexuality is, but you're engaged in pornography. You're entertained by it in the movies that you watch. It should be shocking to you. Whenever you're not shocked by sexual sin, you should go read this passage, because it's shocking. It makes your stomach turn that here's a dad saying, please gang rape my daughter all night till she dies, and he thinks that's okay. That's like you saying, well, nobody was really hurt in all of this. This is just a private thing. No. This is what God thinks about this. But what's wonderful is that first... Corinthians 6 verse 9 gives us hope. What if you've done this already? What if you're engaged in it right now? Sexual sin. 1 Corinthians 6 9. Starts off pretty bleakly. Verse 9 says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? And then he lists some of the unrighteous. Do not be deceived. Neither sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. I love how all-encompassing that list is because people often get focused on homosexuality, but 
shoplifters go to the same place that gay people go when they die. It's not that Christians are saying, oh no, homosexuality is bad. No, we're saying everything's bad. It's not just that gay people go to hell. Everybody goes to hell. But God, because he loves us so much, made a way that someone else would pay that price for you. The same price he pays for homosexuals, the same price he pays for shoplifters and for people who are greedy and discontent with their wages and, and people who get drunk and the sexually immoral, those that slept with their girlfriends before they got married. They're all in the same boat, but God made a way. And it goes on to say, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 11, such were some of you. Such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. That's our hope. Our only hope, the same as Israel's only hope, is a deliverer. At this point in the story of Israel, they're just hoping someone will stand up and put an end to their wickedness, that there will be a deliverer from the state that they're in. They just need a king. And when the king comes, he is a disappointment. And he's replaced by another king who's fantastic until he's a disappointment. But there's a promise that from his line would come another king who's not a disappointment that the son of David would one day rule and that he would die for our sins and free us from our sins and free us from the very things that would drag us to hell so that he could wash us clean by his blood. So that no matter what you've done, I want you to think of the worst thing you've ever done in your life, that can be washed clean in a second by turning your back on it and asking Christ for forgiveness. He loves to forgive. He promises to forgive. He died so that he can forgive. The only people who aren't forgiven are the people who refuse to repent. Oh, what I did wasn't that bad. Oh, what I did is normal. Everybody's doing it. The Bible should be updated. It's so old-fashioned. You start to rationalize your sin away and hide it and justify it, go read what God thinks about sexual sin. But if you're willing to embrace the Savior, you can be washed clean of that in a moment. Then nothing matters. Nothing that you've ever done then it, it's all wiped out. When, he, when God looks at you, he sees the righteousness of Christ. Christ was on the cross. He paid for that very sin that you're thinking of. And he put into your account the righteousness of his perfection where he kept that sin out of his mind the whole time he was alive, something you couldn't do, which is why you need grace. That's why he gives it. So this was an horrific act that was meant to shock us. It's meant to shock the nation into action. And it does that. Dividing her into the 12 parts and FedExing her all over the country, it's pretty gruesome stuff, but the implication is it was an explanation of what happened, and each tribe gets this, and the scuttlebutt spreads the word, and it kind of goes viral, and the whole country is galvanized by the death of this woman, and what happened, and why the Gibeonites didn't protect her, and they mobilized for war. And so it does shock them into action and it does unite the kingdom and it does so almost too well that leads to the near genocide of the Benjamites, which is something we will see next week. And believe it or not, the genocide, it's easier to read than the stuff we read tonight. So we'll see you next week. Father, we thank you for this text. It's very, very disturbing and it should be. 
I pray that you would help us to be people that are never desensitized to sexual sin, that we are never okay with seeing this type of violence and perversion and, and not being um, distressed by it. And so I pray, Lord, that you'd help this shock therapy, just bring us back to realize what we need to do in our own lives to be pure and to be holy. There may be someone here tonight, Lord, who needs to make that break from an addiction to pornography once and for all. They may be an adulterous relationship. It may be fornication. Whatever it is, Lord, whatever sexual sin, I pray that your spirit would convict and grant the power to be free of that sin through Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross. We pray these things in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.